Hey, everybody, and welcome to another bonus episode of Beyond the Breakers. This is our bonus episode for July 2022. Taylor, how's it going? Not too bad. Glad to be here on July 31st doing our July bonus episode. Yeah, cutting it close for sure, but we're going to technically get this out in front of the deadline. So this one actually is an interesting bonus episode in that it spun out of a different bonus topic or a related bonus topic that I was going to mm-hmm. present on. Uh, and that was sea shanties. You know, we talk about a lot of different music, folk music, maritime music. Sea shanties are a big part of that. Love a good sea shanty. And I wanted to do a little bit of research on kind of the history, the taxonomy, the different uses, uh, the development of sea shanties, how they've changed over time, why mm-hmm. they're so enduringly popular, even with people who have never been to sea. And in the process of that, I I came across an interesting sort of background article um, that has more to do with the maritime mindsets and sort of identity than it does with, you know, sea shanties themselves. Mm -hmm. So for this bonus episode, I wanted to discuss an article that I came across um, called Dead Men Do Tell Tales, Folklore, Fraternity, and the Folksoul. Nice. Um, So yeah, we talk pretty frequently actually about folklore um, on this show, especially in, in bonus episodes. But right. in a lot of our main episodes, that comes up as well. In our main episodes, we tend to deal more with kind of the culture and the mentality involved with going to sea. Right. You know, we often we talk about the need for this kind of perfect mix uh, in a sea captain of caution. You know, the sea is a dangerous place. Right. But at the same time, as we've said numerous times, if you only sailed in fair weather, you would never sail. So yeah, the need to sort of balance the inherent risks of the trade with that that level of caution uh, to do it successfully. You know, tied in with that healthy awareness of risk is this need for a captain and the crew to remain pretty even keeled. That was an intentional pun. And, <laughs> uh, you know, pretty cool under pressure. Right. Very stoic in the face of danger, uh, whether that's known or unknown. That's one of the top qualities we talk about is is staying cool, staying calm. And even when someone is probably deathly afraid, you don't want to show that because you don't want to you know, set off panic uh, in the rest of the people on the ship. That's why you say it's always worth, worse in Alaska the whole time. You sail into a hurricane. Yeah. Um, and we'll kind of get into, you know, things like that, you know, little aphorisms that are kind of exchanged to sort of allay those fears of, Hey, like, you know, it could be worse, you know, don't worry too Mm -hmm. much about this. This, it it definitely gets worse. Um, yeah, those are all, you know, little things related to the folklore of the sea and, and how you sort of manage those pretty terrifying risks, uh, that you're facing. Right. Uh, so this article is written by Brian J. Rouleau. Uh, And it was published in spring of 2007 in the journal Early American Studies. And what this article does, it uses some contemporary writing, uh, some primary source material from a few different viewpoint figures to construct kind of an image of life at sea in the 17 and 1800s. Interesting. Uh, So one of the people it uh, this article covers is John Nichol. Uh, who was a Scotsman who joined the Royal Navy in the early 1770s, and he served for 25 years. That is a long time to be in the Navy in the 1770s. 
Yeah, it is, especially when you look at some of the stuff that he would have been in the Navy for. Uh, you know, he's joining up right when the conflict in the Americas is kicking off, um, you know, in the colonies. Um, so dealing with that. And then also getting into some of the beginning of the French Revolutionary Wars that, you know, that Britain was involved with. Definitely an exciting time to be in the Navy. Uh, I believe right. I read in that article that John Nichol was actually uh, a crew member on the first ship to visit Hawaii when uh, after Captain Cook was uh, Captain Cooked. <laughs> So yeah, I thought that was an interesting little little detail, kind of setting it in the frame of uh, other stories we've told. We talked about the bounty. There's that little bit in the movie where Captain Cook comes up, yeah, as kind of this you know almost a, almost a mythical figure uh, for the people of Tahiti. So this guy's existing in that same time period. So. Yeah, he's he's operating in that same frame of time. We've we've kind of been discussing in these nice. uh, in some of these bonus episodes. The first subject that's really tackled in the article is it's kind of a big one that comes up throughout but it's the sort of natural withering away of public formalized religion on board a mm -hmm. ship um, at least as it would be recognizable to someone on land you know of the time nickel describes being raised probably you know probably like a lot of people at the time in a household with very strict rules about prayer um, you know, it's mm -hmm. something that you do, you you do it this many times, you do it these times per day, you don't forget it, you know, probably not out of the ordinary, but a very religious household. That's obviously something that sticks with you. Um, I think, you know, anyone who grew up in a religious household, you, you hold on to aspects of that, um, you know, mm -hmm. even, even after you've kind of ditched the main trappings of it, it's very hard to distance yourself from that entirely. So after coming on board the ship, Nickel writes... I said my prayers and read my Bible in private, but became more and more remiss until I was a sailor like the rest. <laughs> so I think that's an interesting little window on this, you know, drastic change in lifestyle going from this life at home to life on board a ship and, and holding on to certain aspects of it that kind of keep some familiarity. You, you could make the make the connection of, you know, someone maybe who went to church when they were in high school living at home, they go to college, maybe they go to church for the first semester or the first month. And, you know, as other things come up, you know, other social things develop, maybe they stop or they, they go less frequently. And that's kind of what you see here, kind of holding on to that in private, but kind of realizing that, OK, this this isn't something that is going to help me in the public sphere on this mm -hmm. vessel. So yeah, as we kind of said, this article pairs really well with our last episode on the bounty. So quoting here from page 31 of that article. When he signed his shipping articles, John Nickel remitted himself to the confines of the forecastle for an indefinite period. He essentially agreed to subject himself to the efforts of his officers to make a sailor of him. They compelled him to follow their orders, obey their laws, eat their food, and bear it as best he could. In exchange... Nickel expected fair treatment and a responsible management of the vessel from port to port. So this it sort of addresses a question that I think about a lot when we talk about the age of sail. You know, we talked about Captain Bly uh, in our last bonus episode, how, you know, mm -hmm. a reputation as being uh, somewhat harsh, but that also being par for the course. Um, right. you, you basically you didn't gain command of a ship by being lenient. And so thinking about when this is such a, an, you know, 
ingrained part of the Royal Navy. Why was mutiny not more frequent? You know, why weren't there bounties all Mm -hmm. the time? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Like, the numbers are always going to be on the crew side, right? When there's only Mm -hmm. four or five officers on board. Exactly. And kind of points out a good thing here that that it is a very transactional thing. It's like, sure, the officer's going to yell at you. He might whip you for doing something wrong. And that is more or less accepted by the sailors in exchange for, okay, you better be navigating us somewhere safe. You know, you better mm-hmm. be taking us somewhere profitable that we're going to actually benefit. I think that's shown too, like in the whole like going around the horn aspect mm-hmm. of the bounty, right? Like Captain Blythe is kind of breaking the covenant a little bit there by putting the ship in danger unnecessarily. He's not playing by those rules. Yeah, exactly. And you see, that's when the problems start to develop. You know, it's it's not the fact that it's dangerous. It's the fact that this is dangerous and we don't have to be doing this. We could just as easily be doing this a safer way. Like, yeah, everyone accepts that, like, what we're doing is kind of dangerous. Mm-hmm. But like, like you said, it's unnecessarily dangerous. Yeah. And at least how it's presented, you know, to satisfy what's basically just a personal goal of flies mm-hmm. to circumnavigate the goal, uh, circumnavigate the globe saying this, this isn't in the contract, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll risk our lives, but not for this. Whereas, you know, if you had one of these adventure, like one of these journeys that like the goal was to sail around the world, then the crew that signed on knows that that's part of it. And, yeah. you know, maybe they're more willing to accept that danger. So, yeah, idea being here that, you know, everyone's playing by these rules, you know, as harsh as they might be in exchange for a safe and successful voyage. So later in the article, Rulo writes that... Uh, Nickel felt himself a sailor not so much when he came to understand the orders of his captain, but when he successfully imitated the disposition of his fellow mariners. I think that's super interesting because I think anytime you get into these closed environments, right, you see that that you might know how to do a job or know how to do something, but that doesn't mean you're part of the group. Mm-hmm. My first thought is it kind of reminds me of the replacement episodes of Band of Brothers. Oh, right. Where right. there's, you know, it's it's post um, Battle of the Bulge and Best Stone, and there's replacements coming in that have all the same training and abilities as the guys who are already there. But because they didn't go through this, you know, mm-hmm. traumatic experience with them, they're not part of the in-group. It doesn't matter what skills right. you have or that you can do a job. It's did you go through these experiences with me and my people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you even see it played out with the the scene um, with, uh, with Bull Randleman saying to i forget who i think it's Cobb, um and he says you didn't fight in normandy neither yeah even though you have been here you know from the beginning you don't have the same shared experiences Mm -hmm. and again i don't i don't know if that exchange actually happened but you know the concept that it displays is that yeah like shared experiences are everything it's kind of that way in the teaching world right now with (laughs) it's kind of that way in the teaching world right now with um with covid Mm-hmm. You know, if you're kind of a new teacher coming in, you know, after things have somewhat normalized, at least on campus, it's like, well, you didn't go through the tough times at the beginning when everyone was shifting on to, you know, teaching on teams or on Zoom and no one knew what to do. That was that was the Normandy of the teaching. Uh, trade. <laughs> I mean, I think that's probably any job at this point mm-hmm. is I mean, same at my work, right? Like you either went through COVID with us or you didn't. Mm-hmm. And all of the 
you know, we have four people out and there's only five people in the office and it's crazy, but like we still had to do it, you know? Yeah. You either went through those experiences with us or you came in afterwards. And yeah, like I think you are, it's not obviously not the same scale or as dramatic as Band of Brothers or this, but there is sort of a, you know, you guys didn't go through the bad parts with us. There's an us and them. Or any any retail job if you've if you've never worked Black Friday. It, it, yeah, exactly. It's one of those things where y- you've done it or you haven't. You know how bad it can be or you don't. I know that's funny because we were actually talking about something similar. We had a friend come over last night and hang out. And my girlfriend's also worked at retail at a sporting good place like I did mm-hmm. in high school and college. We were all kind of talking about like Black Friday stuff and like, yep, nothing like standing in Sports Authority or Dick Sporting Goods at four in the morning, you know, after mm-hmm. Thanksgiving waiting for you know people to yell at you about sales like it's just an experience you've either had or not had yeah so it really comes down to you know what you know individually isn't important mm-hmm. what the group knows and has experienced is the 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 dominant important thing if you can gel with that if you can you know gain that experience and sort of be a team player you're fine you'll be accepted into it eventually and you know next time around you'll be the one Right. Telling the rookie, like, oh, you have no idea how bad it is. Right. It's sort of a timeless theme, right? Like, I know we always kind of think like it only happens now or in dramatic situations, but like, it's pretty universal, apparently. Kind of a theme that runs through this whole thing is the idea of leveling, you know, saying no matter what your experience is before this, no matter what your background is, you're here now and you're learning how to do this. And this is the way that it needs to happen. Uh, So back to the subject of religion in particular, Rouleau writes, Some sailors never lost their deeply held religious convictions, whereas others stepped aboard with little to lose in the first place. Whatever the individual case, this was on the whole a mimetic process influencing many common sailors new to the sea, a sculpting procedure that took the soft clay of these green hands and attempted to mold them into hardened shellbacks capable of withstanding the many trials to come in an ever perilous maritime world. Hmm. I like that metaphor of them literally being hardened into shellbacks. Yeah. It's, that is it's, good. Very, it's very cool. So to survive those trials, you know, some of which we've already alluded to, you're thinking of being out on the open sea, the weather, uh, you know, nature naturally is going to be one of your biggest concerns. So to get through that, anything on board a ship, we always talk about with bridge resource management, you know, communication, working as a team is massively important. One of the things here talking about the common crew is solidarity. Mm -hmm. Um, If you don't have that as a group, as a unit, the age of sail isn't going to treat you very nicely. Right. So quoting here, circumstances compelled the common seamen both to emphasize teamwork and to categorically reject behavior that posed a threat to this solidarity. So basically, any behavior that's deviant from the norm would have been undesirable. Right. And one of the most divisive things you can probably think of is really vocal religious fervor. Yeah, that makes sense when people are really upset about what's the difference between like a Methodist and an Anglican and like they're ready to fight over it. You know what I mean? It's kind of one of those classic things like in the workplace, you know, in general, it's a solid rule like don't talk about politics, don't talk about religion. It's just a kind of a good general rule of thumb to follow. And no different here. Basically, as much as that could be suppressed, the better. You know, not saying you can't do what you want, you know, lying in your hammock at night, pray to whatever God you want to. But when you're out on deck, when you're with the group, you're one of us. We're all the same. Mm -hmm. 
I think it's also interesting. I think you see a little bit of this um, in a way, like in the bounty, like when they're crossing the equator and they're dragging that officer in the water. Right, right. So you're getting that little bit of breakdown of like, okay, for this one time, like the crew gets to have a leg up on the officers. Like, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Because he hasn't done that experience yet. Mm-hmm. So he has to kind of humble himself and do that to be accepted by the group. Like he'd yeah. still be in charge if he played along or not, but to have the respect of the crew, mm-hmm. you've got to kind of, you know, bring yourself down to that for a little bit and put up with it. Right. To be, you know, it, it's sort of that thing of becoming part of the in-group by having those common experiences and everything. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's, it's interesting. So new sailors obviously expected to learn from the veterans and essentially fall in line in the extremely hierarchical world of you know 17 1800s you can obviously see how this is desirable if you are a i don't know a farm boy who just signed on and you've never been on the ocean before yeah listen to the guy who's been doing it for 10 years if he tells right. you how to do something you're going to listen to that person and so there we kind of see the kind of the antecedents of some issues that we end up talking about on the show quite a bit and that's basically this hyper deference to someone who's perceived as an authority figure you know, really avoiding being assertive and deferring to those who, you know, theoretically know better. Mm-hmm. Again, good advice in general, um, especially at this time period um, where sailing truly is an art form. But yeah, it can be overapplied. And the results uh, that results often in even now, you know, things being missed, thing, things being overlooked, you know, people not asking questions about things that they probably should ask questions about. Um, like, you know, did we... Did we purge that tank of all the gases before I start welding in it? Yeah, correct. Um, Yeah, the idea of, well, this guy is in charge. He probably knows what's going on better than I do. I'm not going to ask any questions. Yeah, so there's always that balance between, yeah, I mean, you probably should listen to the people who know what they're doing. But also balancing that with if you see something, say something. Right. So part of that idea of falling in line it had a lot to do with severing one's connection to land or more specifically to their previous life, you know, their quote unquote home. Quoting here, the folks was a great leveler enforcing a normative behavioral code that denied the right of men to make claims of superiority over one another. Factors such as race and class often seem to matter less aboard a ship in an occupation that necessitated a more synergistic mindset. And there, I think Rouleau is not claiming total equality on racial lines and that's that's probably not what he's discussing here but definitely a a situation where it would have been a lot more equal mm-hmm. and probably a lot more capable of of advancing in a situation where you might not assure i think i mean isn't that like kind of almost it's almost a stereotype i feel like with military and this kind of thing but because it's true that you know mm-hmm like war and hardship is like the great equalizer amongst people mm-hmm. in the moment, at least. Um, I just saw a video on Twitter, I think the other day of, it was a Muslim fighter in Ukraine in a foxhole. Mm-hmm. And he's on there saying like, I'm Mujahideen from Afghanistan and I'm in a foxhole with this guy that's ex Israeli IDF, but we're <laughs> both in Ukraine and we're both fighting the Russians right now. And it's sort of the same thing, right? Like these two people objectively should hate each other mm-hmm. and, you know, probably would fight against each other in other circumstances. But when there's Russian artillery coming around, <laughs> you know, down around them, they don't care. They're trying to help each other and, you know, fight for each other. It's, mm-hmm. it's interesting that like this 
is such a common theme throughout those things. In this case, it highlights the the way that the you know being at sea truly is a different world. In that those mm-hmm. social structures on land, eh, great, but they don't matter here. If you're a common crewman, you know under the officer's lash, it doesn't really matter what color your skin is. So yeah, like there, there's that idea here that there's that solidarity because of the situation. Uh, this is where I came across a book that I shared on Twitter last night uh, called Blackjacks, African-American Seamen in the Age of Sail mm-hmm. uh, by W. Jeffrey Bolster. I haven't started reading it yet, uh, but it sounds really fascinating. And it's a I mean, it's a topic that I know we haven't really discussed. So yeah, it was cool to find a, a pretty interesting resource on on that. So back to, uh, you know, religion, obviously a problem for that synergistic mindset when you're dealing with people from all these different diverse backgrounds like you said before you know even two white english guys from straight off the farm uh, you know one of them could be a anglican and the other a methodist and you've got arguments right there possibly two people that you know for all outward appearances are the same uh, right but yeah there's there's few greater dividers in the world than religion but also religion plays a role. The fact that it exists, you know, independently in so many different societies definitely speaks to the at least the utility of religion. So what takes its place is the question. If we're if we're suppressing that in the public sphere on a ship, you know, what what are you going to do instead? Because there's always going to be something. Right. Even people who claim to be totally irreligious have something that they probably latch onto mm-hmm. that sort of has that same function. And this is where our beloved maritime folklore comes in. Uh, quote, Having worked to create a sort of spiritual void, the same culture then functioned to fill that vacuum with an array of legends and superstitions far better suited to the demands of the deep blue sea. Interesting. So I like this. I like this description of kind of religion more as a tool than any sort of natural truth of it has a purpose. It has a function. I think... It helps give like that sort of base of common stories to operate off of. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, Rouleau describes this sharing of stories as a bonding experience for these men whose you know previous bonds have been cut. You know, you're no longer from Liverpool uh, or from Bristol or from Edinburgh. You're from the HMS Bounty. Well, and like I think what we're describing is like. I, it's so easy to bring this back to military stuff over and over, but we're describing basic training. The reason they yell at you and they make you do a bunch of menial little tasks is to break that down of your individual thought and just make you part of the group. If I tell the group to do mm-hmm. 15 push-ups, you do 15 push-ups. You're part of the group. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's the same process, right, of losing that individual identity and becoming part of the group and, and accomplishing things and not wanting to hurt the group because of your own individual you know, mm-hmm. needs or desires. I mean, it's, it's the reason why I look at someone – Look at a group like the Marines, the U.S. Marines, how much mythology there is around that and how much mm-hmm. history that they, you know, teach and everything. Like, just, a, you know, basic entry-level soldiers. Like, mm-hmm. it's to establish those bonds and to show, like, you know, you're part of this history of this thing. It's very interesting. Don't call them soldiers. I don't think Marines like that. Yeah, yeah, they don't. They don't. Wet soldiers. <laughs> uh, so, another person that he writes about here is Charles Ting. I don't know if that's right, but I also don't think he's around to correct us. <laughs> he began sailing at age 13, and he wrote that while in private, you know, these folklore, these stories that would share, you know, it seemed to him ridiculous. You know, he was a 
rational, clear thinking person. He didn't actually believe these things. You know, things like sailors seeing a black bear in the rigging as an indicator of a coming storm. I would be concerned. <laughs> um, so things like that. You know, of course, you know, I, I don't believe that literally, but, you know, it's this collective belief and sort of buying in that really matters. And when I was thinking about that, what I thought about is how so often we watch a lot of sports. You know, there's mm-hmm. always you know these big blockbuster transactions of this person going to a new team and how often something that on paper should work out really well. Very often doesn't and it spirals into this big media circus because you know this player just doesn't fit in this player just can't get with the system you know whether it's a new coach or the new franchise um or his teammates if you're not gelling with that with the overall group it really doesn't matter how good or how knowledgeable you are as an individual maybe your player has 30 sexual assault allegations against him and you traded away all your first round draft picks Perfect. for the next yeah, yeah, exactly. And then thinking about what that does to the psyche of, in this case, the locker room. Um, <laughs> you know, if if right through the door, there's already this big, you know, I feel like calling it a divisive issue is even is is downplaying it too much. But yeah, like that, that is a big deal. Like it doesn't really matter what skills you have if you can't function in the team setting you need to function in. I think what I'm saying is we need to write a sea shanty about Deshaun Watson. Yeah. Um, Deshanty. <laughs> Quote, By engaging sailors in discursive yarns, experienced mariners taught lessons about proper seaman-like conduct, such as attentiveness and togetherness. And what this reminded me of was a Stan Rogers song. Of course. Um, it reminded me of the song White Squall. Okay. Are you familiar with that song? I don't think I know that one, but I will listen to it after this. White Squalls, it's one of my favorite Stan Rogers songs. And the premise of it is that, you know, the narrator is singing about, uh, you know, being being out on the uh, being out on watch, being out on the, the deck of the ship. And he's singing about this younger sailor who's just kind of relaxing on deck. And. I, I won't spoil the story for you so you can listen to it because it's a good story. Um, but there's a line where he says, I told that kid a hundred times, don't take the lakes for granted. I think he follows that with they they go from calm to a hundred knots so fast they seem enchanted. Fair enough. There's this idea of the the lakes being, you know, not malevolent necessarily, but they will hurt you sometimes um, mm-hmm. without warning. They're just a naturally dangerous place to be. The The song doesn't end well for that kid. And you can listen to, you know, how that happens. But the idea here being, you know, this this idea of, of telling this younger sailor, hey, you know, you, you you should be on a line. You should really be tied down there as he's just relaxing on deck could definitely come off as just this crusty old salt trying to intimidate a younger sailor saying, oh, like you have no idea how bad these lakes can be. When in fact, that that sort of collective knowledge is very important and not paying attention to it, you know, has dangerous consequences. Right. Um, that's that's what I thought of first when I was thinking about this this idea of uh, the sharing of these collective bits of knowledge that, yeah, on the surface, they might sound exaggerated or overblown, but there's a reason that they're there um, and the reason that they've stayed and, and been exchanged for so long. Mm-hmm. 
Rouleau contends that this notion of the irreligious and irreverent Jack Tar is kind of off base. Um, you know, the idea of the drinking, swearing sailor. Um, sure, all that stuff happened. But th- this idea of them being, you know, irreverent, irreligious figures is at least partially a creation of religious reformers in the 1800s who were just mm. unhappy with the behavior that they were seeing from mariners. When you look at some of these things with, you know, folklore and um, spirituality and religion at sea, it's it's definitely there, but in a different form. Rather than being concerned with salvation and, you know, the next life, a lot of this, you know, practice at sea is is really just kind of a pragmatic sort of like distillation of those beliefs, more concerned with getting through this life. Things to do, things to pay attention to, uh, to, to make sure that you get through this voyage and your shipmates get through this voyage safely. I think it, there's almost like an Old Testament vibe to this in the sense of like, why does it say not to eat shellfish in the Old Testament? Well, mm. you know what I mean? Like they didn't know what anaphylactic shock was or, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, why not eat pork? Well, trigonosis is a real bitch. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. There's like practical reasons behind a lot of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting just seeing out of context, it seems arbitrary, right? Right. But right. within the proper context, like it makes sense for some of these rules to mm-hmm. exist. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that that's a that's a great connection I hadn't really made. Also, I think in, an, in a sort of Old Testament sense, you, you read some things in the Old Testament. I don't like the book of Job and very much you you kind of get the sense a lot of times that well no life's not fair and no one ever promised you that it was and that's kind of the the vibe you get here from a lot of these folklore things is you know there's here's some things you can do but hey you know sometimes the sea just hauls off and smacks you on right? yeah right and there's not much you can do about it so yeah quote here men of the sea discouraged from a deeply religious worldview ceaselessly scanned their environment for the clues that might help to contain and control it kind of by like giving these semi-religious features to the environment itself. It kind of helps to like personalize and in a way rationalize it. Mm -hmm. It's a lot easier to bargain. If you think that someone's there listening kind of back to the Edmund Fitzgerald, that idea of like, does anyone know where the love of God goes? Mm -hmm. Surely there has to be something there because otherwise I'm just, I'm just pleading into the void. So Let's just let's just assume that something is there. Right. Yeah, it's an interesting, like kind of big and depressing feature of this. But yeah, the idea that if if there's a personal element to this, well, maybe I can bargain with it. Maybe I can bargain with the sea and it won't take me this time. I think it's it's sort of again, to bring it back to a military thing, it's sort of that almost cliche saying of like there's no atheists in foxholes. Like, you know what I mean? Like when you're under artillery fire you bargain as well, right? Like the same as if you were in like a, a huge storm on the lakes or something like that. Mm-hmm. Like you might suddenly <laughs> feel the urge to do that because otherwise, like what else do you have? Yeah. And I think, I think as, as this kind of points out is like that phrase in particular gets sort of decontextualized, but you know, like that doesn't necessarily mean that you are, you know, praying a hail Mary or you are, you're adhering to some specific faith all of a sudden, but definitely that need, kind of that deeper human need to have something. There has mm-hmm. to be some other reason or rational thing happening here. Otherwise, I'm just a meaningless little speck who's being scrubbed out of existence. And I can't right. let that happen. 
Like you're describing every battle in World War One at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So so next up here, back to this idea of this emotional stoicism here on page 44 talks about emotional restraint and stoicism in the face of hardship were the sorts of dispositions favored by sailors interested in enforcing the behavioral consensus necessary to navigate the perilous ocean world. We see that played out a lot, I think, most famously with the Edmund Fitzgerald mm-hmm. saying, you know, how, how are you doing with your problem? We're holding our own. Yeah. You know, wh- whether or not in that case, Ernest McSorley knew that there was a fatal problem with his ship, we don't really know. But, you know, whether he did or not, probably would have sounded something like that. It basically doesn't matter how bad things get. You can show concern. You know, you can you can be aware of, you know, safety issues and things that you want to want to um, be aware of. But you don't show abject fear. Yeah. And like I'm thinking, like, what is the opposite of that look like? And you come back to, like, the Oceanos mm-hmm. and like what that captain does there. Like, there's a reason why that attitude has to be part of it that emotional stoicism, because otherwise it looks like the Costa Concordia or the Oceanos. And like, it's just unacceptable to be in that position and have that reaction. It's the same as being a a cop and standing outside the school while the shooting happens. I was just going to draw that comparison of like it. It's that same sort of sense of basic, like social revilement Mm -hmm. of there's, there's certain jobs, certain positions where like you, have to do this like this is not an option and i think the oceanos is is a great comparison of you know this is a case where you just have the captain and crew dipping out and fortunately things worked out better than they could have but it's yeah it is one of those things where it's just like an appalling lack of not not even decorum but just a, a lack of attention being paid to the basic basic aspects of your job I think, you know, I think of it a lot as like being a firefighter, right? Like you're expected to put your life in danger to do things by the nature of being a firefighter. That doesn't mean that you run into a situation that's like certain death to you and your crew. You don't sail mm-hmm. into a hurricane. Right. But there may be individual moments where you do something that is inherently very dangerous to you, but you do it because that's your job. Um, so from page 46, he actually gets into this courage a natural trait to value in a profession so fraught with danger, functioned as one component of this masculine identity. If a sailor was not willing to accept risks and confront hazards, he might quickly find himself both degraded and unemployed. That side of the coin we saw, uh, I want to say it was from the, uh, the brother Jonathan, where the captain said, I really don't want to sail on this. This is not safe. And the response from the agent was, great. You don't have to. I will find <laughs> someone else to do it. Right. But this was not arbitrary or reckless courage. Temerity could threaten both personal existence and, by extension, the success of a voyage where all hands were needed. Um, so this is straight back to what you just said about the firefighters of, yeah, there's going to be personal risks involved, but you don't, you know, needlessly run into a burning building for no foreseeable benefit. It's not just about putting yourself at risk. It's about doing so in a way that's, you know, beneficial and going to ultimately help you achieve your goal. Right. In the same way we talk about with, you know, sea captains, there's there's an appropriate level of uh, risk to take. Yeah, you you 
probably will have to sail in some rough weather, but you don't do that needlessly. We we see in a lot of the storm stories we talk about a lot of times, you know, when we when we see a storm that takes down a ship, very often there's other ships that have stayed in harbor mm-hmm. um, for that very reason. Um, last thing here, there's there's a lot more to the article, but the last thing I'll cover here, and then I'll share the article on Patreon, is uh, comes from page forty eight, um, and it has to do with another function of folklore. And that is fear, conflict, and dissatisfaction were all protected under the umbrella of a sailor's folklore, which permitted him to refashion the otherwise unutterable into a mutually understood dialogue, thereby reconstituting the taboo as the tolerated. Hmm. Uh, What he gets into in the article is, you know, we talked about sailors not being able to show fear, even in a case where they know that it's warranted. And one of those had to do with the seaworthiness of a vessel. If you've been sailing for, you know, 10, 15 years, you could probably take one look at a ship and know whether or not you want to get on it. But you can't just say, I'm afraid of drowning. I'm afraid that this ship is going to sink because that doesn't fit with the the code that we've already established here. Uh, Mm -hmm. You don't just show that you're afraid of something. But if you can find some sort of sign, some sort of omen, you know, it's bad luck to see five seagulls uh, sitting on the yard arm. I'm not going to get on this ship. Now you have some sort of justifiable reason that fits within this code of folklore. Everyone knows this is a bad sign. Everyone knows this is a bad omen. We shouldn't get on this ship. It becomes more socially acceptable because now you're playing by the rules. Um, it's an interesting little little bit there that I liked. And what mm-hmm. it reminded me of was, do you know the song Grupa Krovi by no. the band Kino? I don't. I think it's on our Breakers playlist. It's a song. Uh, it's again. It's by the band Kino. It's from the from the eighties um, in the Soviet Union, and it's about the Soviet war in Afghanistan. And it's the kind of thing that you might think, oh, like it's kind of surprising that the Soviet Union would allow songs to be made about that, right? And there was a, a deal of not controversy, but just kind of some pressure on it. And if I remember correctly, I remember reading about the release of that song and how. You know, to get through, to get certain things through the, you know, censors, sure, you could, you could talk about controversial issues. You could even have some veiled criticism, but you couldn't just come outright and say, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be here. Yeah, you can talk about the sadness. You can talk about the fear that maybe a soldier would feel going into battle. That whole, the the song, Grupa Krovi, the, the name of the song means blood type. And the chorus of it, he says, Grupa Krovi Narukavye, blood type on my sleeve, basically. Um, talking about going into combat with your blood type to show this is me if I get killed, which is probably going to happen. Right. So yeah, things like that. You can point out the aspects of it. There's a, there's a certain acceptable way to present these fears and misgivings, but you don't just come right out and say it. Uh, because hmm. that's, that's not acceptable in this society. Um, and that's kind of what this reminded me of the idea of having to express the express these ideas through the kind of through the veil of folklore in a way that kept it acceptable. So, yeah, there's a lot more to that, um, to that article. I just wanted to go through that some good points of discussion and I'll share the whole thing on Patreon um, for anyone who's interested in reading. I think that's we'll call that a bonus episode. Yeah, we squeezed out more from that than I thought. <laughs> 
All right. Um, we have a main episode to record. I'm going to wrap things up here. Say, uh, if you're listening to this, you must be a patron. So thank you for listening. Um, we definitely appreciate all the support. Um, you know, recently we've gotten several uh, really great, you know, supportive messages and emails from from you, our patrons, and that it really does help. Um, I think, you know, getting through, uh, you know, making the show every week definitely helps see that um, that level of support and, you know, enjoyment uh, from from listeners. So, yeah, I think we'll wrap things up there.